to Helix Tapping the Industry. This episode is a year-end reflection featuring the innovation group of the Next Gen Rubber Leaders Program by IRSG. This year was quite an eventful year. We saw geopolitical tension and China's COVID policies wreaking havoc in the market, rising energy costs with high fertilizer prices, combined with price volatility in the rubber markets, created a very challenging environment for the producers and their survival. While it doesn't represent the pivot that the matured markets are looking at, a sustainable ecosystem, it does represent some important transitions happening in the rubber industry. Welcome to Helix Tapping the Industry, where we examine the forces driving the rubber markets today. I'm Farah Miller, CEO and co-founder of Helix Tap Technologies, In this episode, I will be representing the innovation team of IRSG's Next Generation Rubber Leaders, in short, the NRL, and interviewing some of my teammates. Broadly speaking, the NRL community builds on creative ideas and the innovative potential of the next generation to challenge conventional thinking and explore new strategies for the future of the whole rubber sector. Our 13 participants globally in the inaugural program have outlined three key development issues, namely sustainability, innovation, and diversity. The innovation team focuses on promoting discussion and thought leadership and fostering and encouraging innovation amongst the rubber industry. Based on our diverse experiences, each of us aims to be champions of innovation within our own organizations and the wider rubber industry. I'm glad to be joined today by Desmond and Linda. Desmond has been in the rubber market with Southland Global for more than 10 years, and Linda has a PhD in chemistry and applies her knowledge at the Tyre Stewardship Australia as the science and innovation advisor. Today, I will be picking their respective brains on a few key topics, and it serves as a timely reflection as we reach the end of the year. Hi, Desmond and Linda. Welcome to Helix Tapping the Industry. Hi, Farah. Glad to be on today. Hi, Farah. Happy to be here to share my thoughts with you guys as well today. Thanks. Great. Before deep diving into the conversation, let's start with a little bit about yourselves, your time in the rubber industry, and what makes you guys passionate about it. Desmond, let's hear from you first. Actually, I started in uh, SGX as the uh, product manager of rubber. I would say it's uh, truly love at first sight. After that, I really fell in love with the product and the industry. And as an ex-trader in Roche Packet Banks before joining SGX, it got me then interested in exploring the fiscal trade. Hence, when the opportunity came up to join Southland, I was actually very humbled to be given the chance to join the fiscal trade and Southland itself. And in the blink of an eye, I think I've been there for about close to 10 years. Great. So welcome, Desmond. And let's hear from Linda. Thanks, Farah. So I'm from Australia and I've worked on a variety of different research areas during my research career and my PhD, including projects related to polymer chemistry. This has definitely spiked my interest in the field of rubber chemistry. So whilst I enjoyed the research I was doing previously, I was interested in diving into projects that had a closer impact on the environment and the community. It is really great to have the opportunity in my work to support research and innovation in the reuse and recycling of various rubber products, such as tyres. Thanks both. 
It's always lovely to hear what makes people passionate about the rubber industry. 2022 has been a phenomenally challenging year. Businesses worldwide got impacted and coupled with a lot of changing dynamics as well. The starkest one for rubber was the Indonesian market, a producing country importing different materials, shutdowns, and prices all over the place. So Desmond, given your experience, what were the key challenges for the Indonesian producers, according to you? I think over the years, based on a study by the industry, we can see that actually the farmers are living below the living wage. So this has actually led to a lack of fertilizers and uh, protection for the rubber trees over a long period of time. Hence, for the Indonesia rubber industry itself, we can see that the yield has been dropping over the years. So this vastly affected the supplies of the raw materials for the producers. Besides that, another big impact was uh, during the COVID period. Other commodities prices actually has increased uh, much more than rubber especially palm, because Indonesia is the world-leading palm oil producer. So this led many people in the industry to switch over from rubber to palm. So this has led to the cutting down of the rubber trees. Or even for the uh, labor itself, people are moving to work in the palm industries instead of in the rubber industry. And in addition to that, actually the gestation period for a new palm tree is actually shorter than a rubber tree five years compared to uh, seven years. So then even if there is any new planting or even when people cut down the old rubber trees, the replanting tends to take place to be a conversion to palm instead of rubber due to the uh, shorter gestation period. I think all in all, all these factors has resulted in lower supplies of raw material leading to higher costs for the producers. Yet, as we have seen for rubber over the last few years, the selling price has continued to remain uh, quite challenging in the lower bound range. So, which is why in the last two years especially, we are starting to see many closures of uh, rubber factories in Indonesia. I see. So, given the above situation and Indonesia also adapting by importing African raw materials, is Indonesia walking Malaysia's way? We also saw some m and activities with Paltium partly changing hands again. Do you think more mergers and acquisitions are in the pipeline in 2023? The example or the reference that you referenced to Malaysia is quite timely. But I would see the rubber industry of Indonesia slightly different from Malaysia. And these are the few reasons why. I think uh, number one, Indonesia itself, you have a very uh, youthful population. Hence off actually in the rubber industry itself, it's still basically the, the Indonesians that are being employed and are working in this industry. So ultimately, the rubber industry is still important to Indonesia because it's still a big commodity product for the country and also it employs a lot of people. Whereas for Malaysia, you can see that mostly in the rubber factories itself, it's more or less staffed by foreigners coming from overseas uh, working there. Added to that, I would say for the international car makers, Indonesia, in my opinion, continues to be an important source of supply. This is because due to the geography of Indonesia, unlike other major producing countries like Thailand or even Africa, as you have mentioned, uh, you can get actually consistent supply of rubber throughout the year. Because throughout the year, different parts of Indonesia will be wintering, but you have other places which are not. Whereas if you depend on African or Thai rubber, 
there are certain months when it goes to wintering where you have very little supply of uh, raw material. So I think for the tire plants, what they need is consistent uh, supply of this rubber to keep the tire plants uh, production ongoing. Hands off, uh, Indonesia continues, in my opinion, to play a big role. But of course, notwithstanding the above, challenges do remain for the Indonesian rubber industry. One of it is actually the energy cost because due to the huge increase in oil prices, uh, the energy cost in Indonesia has also increased uh, a lot. So this has added to the uh, production cost for the uh, rubber factories itself. Added to that, global inflation is, is happening. And for Indonesia over the last few years, minimum wage has been going up. And due to inflation for next year, uh, Indonesian government has also indicated the minimum wage could go up by an average of 10%. So I think all these factors increases the production cost, especially for the Indonesia producers. And that makes the uh, industry quite challenging, which is why some factories uh, decided to close. In my opinion, I think we really do need the international makers to help the Indonesia producers to keep the upstream uh, sustainable. Uh, that's my view on the Indonesia rubber industry. Of course, uh, with regards to the question, I would think uh, more M&A would occur. Why this is so? Because the price of a prime factory compared to the peak period around the 2017-2018, the price has actually readjusted quite a fair bit from the peak. So this actually presents some opportunities at the right price, buying in the right place. So I feel at the current level, it begins to get interesting, which is why you hear of uh, people looking at opportunities and then uh, wondering to see if it's a good time to enter. But all in all, Indonesia, the capacity is still oversupplied compared to the amount of the raw materials uh, availability. So this is one factor to keep in mind. In the not too far future, of course, uh, we hope the Indonesian government will continue to do the replanting. This will help to get the U up. And also, we hope with the international tire makers' uh, support for the upstream, we can still keep this uh, industry sustainable for everyone, the farmers to the rubber factories. Thanks, Desmond, for sharing your in-depth knowledge, especially on the Indonesian front. On a more macro front, do you see any shift in buying with the changing dynamics on the producer side? I understand Africa, despite sustainability issues, is gaining a lot of interest. Yes, I think price is always a challenge and definitely for the buyers itself, they have to source for more cost-effective rubber from other origins. I think this is the uh, nature of the market. Besides that, when we look at Africa, what I can see is uh, in Africa itself now, there's been many new investments uh, going into Africa with the building of uh, many huge factories. So I think in Africa, in the not-too-long future, we might actually start to see uh, overcapacity in terms of the factories. Why this is so is also because uh, due to uh, the concerns on uh, CSR and deforestation, the NGOs are looking at Africa quite closely. Uh, There's a movement uh, not for the forest to be cut down, whether it's to plant rubber, palm, or any other commodities, which is why... In such a situation, I think supply overall, not only Africa, in the whole world, uh, with this uh, CSR movement, is getting capped. Whereas uh, demand will, of course, uh, take times with the 
development of the uh, various world economy to reach a balance point, which I hope would not be uh, too far in the future. Yeah, I mean, based on my team's research, it seems we're reaching the end of the cycle, but time will tell, of course. Talking about sustainability, I'd like to get your view on this, Linda. The EU deforestation law has created a lot of stir in the market. So how practical is the implementation of the same in a fragmented industry like rubber? It's a great question. I think as we see these types of regulations emerge, it puts a lot more pressure on industries such as the rubber industry to push to meet these regulations, such as those in Europe, or seek their business elsewhere. As a globally fragmented industry, it will be quite difficult to implement a similar strategy like this, particularly in areas of the world where sustainability targets are currently not at the top of the priority list. However, I am an optimist and I think there it's necessary to have the right support and mechanisms globally. So with the support of industry advocates from global teams such as ours, the PEFC, the IRSG and any others, there is the potential to see progress in deforestation rubber sustainability on a global scale. I agree and I love the optimism. From my perspective, perfection should never stand in the way of progress. Uh, in your opinion, what are the key bottlenecks in building a circular economy for rubber and who, according to you, would be some of the beneficiaries and some of the losers? So there's a few key bottlenecks that I would allude to. So one would be technology readiness. Another would be uptake from the tyre and rubber industry of recycled content and also embedding a circular mindset across the entire rubber value chain. So whilst tyres back into tyres is the ideal circular economy for rubber in this industry, the materials are often difficult to recycle and a lot of processing is required to reach that point. This technology is starting to emerge in various ways in isolated pockets of the world, but really a global combined effort is required to truly embed circular economy practices into major products, in particular with tyres as the biggest uptake of rubber in the world. Furthermore, it's not just a circular economy for the first life of a rubber product, but a circular mindset for every rubber product created through the second, third and infinite life of these materials. How can we ensure these new innovations for reused rubber don't just push the issue down the line, but instead build circular design into the process? So you asked about positives and negatives or beneficiaries of a circular economy. So I believe that it's possible that the entire rubber value chain would benefit from this as rubber would then remain in circulation for as long as possible. So manufacturers can retain a sustainable material and users would have credibility that their products are truly sustainable. It's difficult to say what impact this would have on the natural rubber industry and smallholders, because as we move into a circular economy, this would reduce demand for virgin resources. However, as Desmond's already discussed, this supply and demand needs to find a balance and the industry will be able to ideally meet up with that sort of balance. 
Circularity itself is about efficiency and sustainability of virgin materials such as rubber. So natural rubber farmers actually have the potential opportunity to play a very important role and pioneer in this space. Thanks, Linda. Indeed, from my perspective, heading up Helix Tech, which is a data company, the millions at the upstream level and fragmentation is where I think we can tap onto technology and some innovation to help to start, unpack and embark on traceability. Desmond, what do you think would be the impact on the prices if there is a shift to sustainable rubber happening? That's a great question. I believe that the main impact on sustainable rubber would actually help the trade, especially the upstream, to be sustainable because all this uh, help, we could actually pass it on to the farmers to make them able to reach a living wage. So that's where then the industry can continue to sustain itself. I think when we look at the question of price, we can see that uh, price is actually dependent on many factors. And also, as we have seen in the volatility of the rubber price over the last few years, hands off, I think uh, sustainable rubber could be a driver for any price increase, but uh, it, it is just one of many, in my opinion. Yes, the market forces always wins. And as we've seen in various iterations, an arbitrary support level for prices does not stop prices from going down if demand is lackluster. Looking ahead to 2023, I would like to ask all of you what, in your views, would be the game changer next year. Let's start with you, Desmond. I think from the price point of view, my opinion, three factors are driving the demand and the sentiments and, of course, the price. One is, of course, the uh, decisions of the Fed with regards to interest rate because uh, directly interest rates affect funding costs which affects the cost of production uh, for factories itself. So that actually brings up the break-even price of uh, rubber. Number two would be the COVID-19 uh, policy in China. Because after all, China consumes about 40% of the rubber supply. So China is a big market. So if uh, the COVID policy has any changes in China, such as a reopening, there's a hope that consumption will increase. This will then drive up our demand and, of course, our price. Last but not least is the Ukraine-Russian war, which I would relate it to energy. Why this is so is because uh, due to the war, as we have seen, it has causes the oil prices to go up. And this actually affects production costs because uh, energy cost is a huge part of any production cost for rubber factories. And besides that, Europe is also an important market for rubber demand. When you have this uh, Ukraine war, it affects the sentiments in the European market and that also affects uh, consumption. Being an ever-optimist, I'm hopeful that on all three fronts, the worst is over and uh, things will hopefully resume more normalcy in 2023. Thanks, Desmond. I agree. And, you know, this week, it seems prices were supported and despite the protests in China, which could mean things are starting to take stabilise. How about you, Linda? What would you view the game changers to look out for next year? Yeah, I think that there's a really big increase in awareness and impacts of climate change, and this is going to drastically change the game as well. 
We can see a lot of conversations happening worldwide on a political level, but also we can see right on our own doorsteps the impacts of climate change. So firstly, on a production level, we need to ensure that the industry is resilient enough to deal with these extreme weather events. And as the world places a higher priority on climate change policies, this is going to increase the pressure to produce sustainable products, place a higher value on carbon emission reductions, and increase resource efficiency and circularity. So these, I feel, are some really key areas that are going to influence the industry moving forward. And as we see those changes, it's really going to change the game. Yeah, I mean, if we look at COP27, the transportation and industrial sectors are among the top three industries that emitted the highest CO2 emissions. So, you know, what you said, uh, Linda, was very important because for the transportation sector, of which the tire and automotive companies are a large segment of, 8.4 billion metric tons of carbon dioxide were emitted just last year. And all major developing and developed countries on average need to reduce emissions by about 50% to get anywhere near the global 2050 target. So wrapping up, thank you to both Desmond and Linda for your valuable insights today on the rubber market, sustainability, and the major topics going forward into 2023. Yeah, thanks, Farah, for having me. And uh, happy holidays, everyone. Thanks, Farah. You're welcome. And wishing everyone a great year ahead. Uh, so thank you all. For more details about the IRSG Next Generation program, you can head over to www.rubberstudy.org forward slash nextgen rubber leaders to join Helix Tap's waitlist for early access to our ESG data or view what kind of research, physical prices data, and trade flow information we already have. You can reach out to us at marketing at helixtap.com. Thank you for tuning in to Helix Tapping the Industry. Until next time. <laughs>